it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. We're about two weeks away from when Russia invaded the Ukraine. And I know this feels like another heavy topic that we don't have the bandwidth for because on top of dealing with a crumbling democracy and a global pandemic that's now an endemic, now we have to live in fear of being on the brink of World War III. Now, before I get to the word of the week, let me attempt to explain the root of this conflict between the Ukraine and Russia. Vladimir Putin is the president of Russia. He's an authoritarian who does not want to see the Ukraine thrive as a liberal democracy. Russia and the Ukraine have had beef for a minute, and the beef reached an escalation point in 2014 when massive protests led to the Ukraine basically getting their pro-Russia president up out the paint. Russia actually invaded the Ukraine then, Realize Putin is a former member of the KGB and he's been salty since the Soviet Union broke up in the 90s. And this is his attempt to restore Russia as a dominant world empire. The Ukraine used to be part of the former Soviet Union and Putin basically wants that old thing back. If Putin remains unchecked, this motherfucker is not going to be trifled with. He already told the United States and everybody else, I wish a motherfucker would interfere with my invasion of the Ukraine. He's told the world, if you feeling froggy, then jump. He's a threat to democracy everywhere because Putin acts like democracy pissed in his grape nuts because he totally seems like the type of person who eats nasty ass grape nuts. Now, I understand what's at stake and why it's important that we support the Ukrainian people. But what I'm extremely disappointed with is how the media has framed why we must support the Ukrainian people. And that's the word of the week. Framing. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. According to the media, the Ukrainians deserve our support, not just because it's our obligation to protect democracies worldwide and not because the Ukrainian people literally have done nothing but be blessed and moisturized and don't deserve to be the target of Putin's pettiness. Let the media tell it the Ukrainians deserve worldwide support because they are hardworking white people from a developed non-savage nation, unlike, you know, those others. And by others, you know exactly who I mean. So take a listen to these clips from journalists from the BBC, Al Jazeera and CBS Network saying all the quiet parts out loud. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Children being killed every day with Putin's missiles and his helicopters and his rockets. As you're talking to us, Matthew, we're playing in the latest pictures of some of the refugees trying to get on trains or trying to get out of Ukraine. And and what's compelling is just looking at them, the way they're dressed. These are prosperous, I'm loath to use the expression, these are prosperous middle-class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from areas in the Middle East that are still in a big state of war. These are not people trying to get away from areas in North Africa. They look like any European family that you would live next door to. This isn't a place, with all due respect, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. Al Jazeera and CBS have since apologized for those remarks from those raggedy ass journalists. But since this invasion, I've listened to numerous pundits and other journalists basically explain that because the Ukraine is in Africa or Iraq or Afghanistan, because these are good, hardworking white folks, that their lives have increased value and they don't deserve to be treated the way they're being treated by the Russians. Even in global conflict, racism finds a way to show up and say, hey, how you doing? And unfortunately, it wasn't limited to news organizations who were doing this. 
a lot of African families and students in the Ukraine aren't being let into some of the neighboring countries and are being treated harshly by border police who have made it clear that they're only providing safe passage into their countries for good white folks and nobody else. A lot of us have seen the footage of the horrible treatment of Africans, and that's caused many of us, understandably, to either withdraw our support of the Ukraine or question why they even deserve it. And some of us have even wondered even more loudly why there's all this support, financial and otherwise, for the Ukraine and no support for the issues that black people face worldwide. I get it. I truly do. But let's not make the mistake of thinking white supremacy is an American issue when it's a global issue. And as my man, the mighty most deaf once said, they got world nigga law in so many corners of this earth. Black people are treated as disposable and unworthy of dignity. But here's why we need to care about what's happening anyway, despite knowing how we're being treated, despite being unsatisfied with how we're being treated, even here in America. For one, if Putin blows this bitch up, We ain't going to have shit to fight about or fight against. Secondly, Putin and the Russians have been very active in supporting a worldwide white nationalist agenda. For example, Russia knows that the weak point in America is racism. Russian hackers have been flooding social media channels with anti-black sentiments since at least the 2016 election cycle. As part of his ongoing campaign to keep Donald Trump permanently placed in power and to keep white supremacy thriving in this world. The Russians created numerous fake anti-Black Lives Matter pages on Facebook. They also waged right-wing campaigns against Black leadership and organizations and created fake news outlets to carry out those anti-Black messages. When you see posts about Black empowerment, posts about racial issues, and suddenly you see a whole bunch of bots jumping in there to cause division and strife, well, this is where a lot of times that shit comes from. The point was to stoke mistrust and ultimately keep everyone off what should be the focal point, stopping the global spread of white supremacy. We can be critical of how the Ukrainian border police are treating Africans. We can rebuke America's hypocritical response to this global crisis and question why we don't have that same energy for black and brown nations when they're being threatened by outside forces. But we also must realize our fates are tied to everyone else's good or bad. So shame on the media for furthering this myth of white superiority. It's the media's role to provide context, not add to the chaos. Framing the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today is one of the funniest women on television, and she has an incredible show on Peacock that is definitely up there when it comes to being the most thoughtful, intelligent. It's just a show that makes you critically think. And usually people don't put late night comedy shows in that particular context. She's an actor, a writer, a producer, an author. She's just dope. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Amber Ruffin. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So I'm trying to figure something out, Amber. Um, Omaha, Nebraska, where you're from, 77% white. What are the odds that you and Gabrielle Union both come from Omaha, Omaha Nebraska? <laughs> How is it that these two, two creative, wonderful black women come from one of the whitest places in America? <laughs> because to be black in Omaha, you got to be excellent. There is no choice. <laughs> I, I feel like that's the case. Yes. I talked to her about it and she, her grandma lived literally two blocks away from my parents. It was insane. Wow. Yeah. We were very close by. And you all never knew each other growing up. And it, it couldn't have been a lot of y'all. Okay. How did yeah. you not know each other? <laughs> Although you might be younger than uh, a little younger than Gab. 
I look about 12 years older than her, but I may be, in fact, a couple years younger. (laughs) (laughs) So what was your Black experience at Omaha? I know you've talked about it at various points, and you and your sister have written a book drawing from those experiences, which we'll get to in a moment. But uh, I guess how would you best describe what it was like growing up Black in Omaha? Growing up Black in Omaha was great, and I recommend it. That's a lie. I'm just kidding. It was bad. (laughs) I mean... It was exactly what you think it was. It was just like that. There weren't a lot of Black people. I remember being a kid when I was 11, it was 11% Black. Honestly, that would have been higher than I would have guessed. Yeah. So we're doing, once we got that Black restaurant, I was like, oh my God, I can leave the house and get greens? I couldn't believe it. And you said that Black, indicating singular that's right that's it so tell me this black restaurant is still in existence you know it's not and this might be a string of lies but what i think is true is terrence bud crawford owned a black restaurant called lolo's which i loved which is now something else but i think what i just said is true either way lolo's was the best but there are others now so it's not bad but lolo's was the first for me it was great Given the the work that you're in, and especially where you come from, uh, I think it takes a, a certain amount of resolve and constitution. So I'm going to ask you a question I ask every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you, Amber Ruffin, become unbothered? I, <laughs> it, it may have happened when I was working at, a theater and I've worked at several theaters. I could be talking about any place right now, but I was somewhere and I, and you know, the pressure was rising and things had to be great, you know, cause where the show is going to open. And then slowly uh, everything that was wrong became my fault. And I was like, Oh, this is what I've been taught by my black parents and black siblings to prepare for i'm becoming the whipping boy and this is real this is a real thing that happens oh my god so that happened then and i thought oh great i know enough now to nip it in the bud and i did and that's when i realized oh they're still i can stop them from treating me this way but they're still going to put all these gross things on me that i haven't done and aren't responsible for so fuck it So that's when I was like, oh, okay. Once someone's made up their mind, it only costs me to make them like me. You know what I mean? And their like isn't worth it. So I think I'm just going to roll out. So I've learned that and I've had to implement that a few times. (laughs) But it is. You mean you've had to have a fuck them attitude a few times? Shocking. (laughs) Well, but it's a nice spidey sense that black people have when the tide is turning and you go, oh, oh, I'm becoming the bad guy for loss of a whipping boy. They need one. So, yeah. Well, you do have uh, a lot of fearlessness with the type of material that you talk about um, on your show, the Amber Ruffin show, which is great. And you, of course, are going for laughs because you're a comedian, but I am constantly in awe of how much information that I actually get from watching your show. Was that always the plan? Because you are really giving people some gems, some historic facts, some history that they probably didn't know. I always liked one of our writers named Michael Harriet. He would always do these threads. Oh, I know Michael Harriet. Yes. He's a fantastic writer. Yeah. Yes, famous Twitter threads that just the only goal is to teach you a thing you didn't know. And I was like, oh, man, it'd be so cool if I could do that on my show. Oh, well. And then I realized it's my show. I can do whatever I want. So I friggin called him up and was like, will you write some of these for me? And he was like, absolutely. So all of those, every time we do a how did we get here? Um, it's Erica Buddington and Michael Harriet. I feel like such an idiot that I didn't know that because he's a phenomenal writer because I follow him on Twitter for the same reason. He's like the best. Yeah. I just love the way that feels when you hear all those facts 
that you should know. I, I'm like, I should know this. And when it gets into my mailbox on Monday, I didn't know it. And on Friday, I say it like I knew it, but I, did, I didn't. He's, I'm learning too. Yeah, because like um, the one that you did about uh, the lake in Georgia had no idea. I mean, that's how all of them are with how do we get here? I literally will have had no idea that this has happened. So I think that's a really cool, amazing wrinkle um, of your show. You know, your show is different because uh, you don't rely on guests. I mean, it, it is for all intents and purposes, you. Was that always the plan? It was always the plan. I did not want guests for one vain reason. I didn't want to have to worry about whether or not people thought my show was good enough to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I didn't want to have to deal with the scheduling of it. Like the, the prospect of people needing us needing to fill time, you know, with people made me nervous. And I was like, I don't want this feeling. I want the feeling where I show up and have fun with my friends. And so we aired on the side of that. I think it was right. Cause I, I can't imagine an interview with me. <laughs> and like, so what do you like to eat in the middle of the, it just be a mess. Well, um, I'm sure given how there is supposed to be a certain blueprint for how talk shows, especially late night talk shows are supposed to be. When you presented that idea to NBC, and I know you did it a few times, was that something that they were not feeling that you had to convince them that this was the right way to go? Absolutely not. NBC has been friggin' comically hands-off. I, I cannot tell you how. Because I was like, they're not going to let me say what I feel like saying. But buddy, no one has ever pressed me at all. They're like, you're cussing a lot. That's fine. Honestly, that's it. That's what they say. There is no, you can't say that in that way. That, that, nothing. So we're very, very lucky that we haven't pressed them yet. But one day I fully expect someone to call me and be like, what is wrong with you? And then I'll, I'll pull back. But until then, I'm just going to keep going guns blazing. You write, you host, and you executive produce this show. Give me an idea of how much bandwidth that requires from you. It's a lot. It's a lot. But I have really, really good writers. It took a minute for me to be like, well, I have to. I mean, yes, I have writers, but I have to write the blah, blah, blah. And now these children are lapping me. So I'm like, okay, now I can let go a little bit more and let them turn in the this and that, you know, the the amount of fun that I think our show requires. They can also hit that now. And the amount of seriousness our show requires, they can also hit that now. So now I've been allowed to step back a little bit. So it's pretty cool. It's nice to see our writers grow, especially because it means I have to do less work. I like that part. <laughs> I have a theory as somebody who's been uh, fortunate enough to be a part of a, a couple of television shows, though not in the realm you're in. Um, but I have a theory that the the show you are the first day you air versus the show you are a year later, even two years later, is so remarkably different because there's a, a settling in process that happens. So how is the Amber Ruffin show different than when you first started? The biggest difference is now we have an audience. And before we started with zero audience, Everyone was lonely, you know, but we could also, we took our time shooting everything because it didn't matter because we had all day. We didn't have to hurry for an audience. So it was a little, um, we, we worried a little more, both because we were just starting out, but also because we had time to shoot it again. But now, once you do it in front of the audience, you don't want to do it again. They don't want to see it again. So you want to do it once and do it right. And then you slowly are like, you know what? I may have flubbed this or that, but it's fine. And because the audience gave you such a good energy that first time, you try harder to get it right the first time. And the first take is always the best one. So we almost never reshoot anything anymore. Oh, wow. You spent your life performing, but... Does it feel weird to, or how long did it take for it to stop feeling weird to have an audience again? It 
feels weird because, and now this, what I'm about to say, combined with my fear that no one was going to want to be a guest on my show has um, highlighted something about me that I will have to talk about in therapy later. But having an audience there, when I walked out, I was like, oh my gosh, all these people came to see the Amber Ruffin show. That was so nice. And I thought, oh my gosh, soon this will be normal. But it's been how many ever shows and every Friday when I walk out and I see all those people, I'm just like, you know, get goosebumps. I can't believe that all those people woke up and were like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go to 30 Rockefeller Center and look at this fool tell jokes. I just am, I just think it's the coolest thing. It's the coolest thing. It That is still sparkly for me and will probably remain so for quite some time. Uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> of course. And not to play your, your, your therapist. But uh, it sounds like there's a part of you that was concerned about whether or not, you know, people were sort of ready for you or people, I don't want to say accept, that's too strong of a word, but it seems like there's some anxiety there around, you know, will people like the show? Will they like me? That kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, 100%. And also that comes from all of the other Black lady late night shows, because ain't but a few and a lot of our shows got canceled almost immediately without getting a half of a second to get their footing. So there's that. But also, I feel like I, I mean, I was nervous about that, but I was also just like trying to be calm about the coolest thing in the world. I always say to our other executive producer, Jenny Hagel, I always say having a show like this is the exact same feeling of being poor where you remember being poor and it was like on any month like if the car breaks down it's over it's done (laughs) like I don't know how I guess we're sleeping in the car and the car just stays on the street like it's it's the feeling that you're fine you're fine you're fine but with any that like the second the show gets canceled the rug gets snatched out from under us and we're like flailing it's that it acts as that same. It activates that same thing in your brain of like this low grade constant panic. <laughs> what a horrible thing to say! But having a show is great. I would like to end it there instead of constant low grade panic. Well, but uh, that's real though, and I don't know if this is something that is especially unique to being black, where we feel like everything can be snatched away from us at any minute. <laughs> I mean, history proves that's true. So we do, we do have that. Yeah. You know, there is, there's quite a track record there, but it, um, it's, it is hard for, I think other people to explain that, yes, you may be doing well, but you feel like in a minute that you wouldn't be, because as you mentioned, the other canceled shows, I, I know Robin Thede, she had a show, obviously Wanda Sykes had one. Uh, I don't know if I'm missing anybody, but have you had conversations with the other black women who came before you about what to expect, what this will be like, you know, those sorts of things? Yes, there are few crews tighter than the black lady late night crew. It is because at first, when it first, first, first started, it was all of us on one little text chain and there wasn't but 10 of us. And we'd be like, okay, so my contract says this, how is that? And, Robin Thede is the friggin' leader and she's always like, this is what you should be getting paid. This is who you talk to about that discrepancy. I know for a fact, so-and-so is getting this, make sure this is in your contract. Like she is a little business baby and I love her two pieces. And at every corner of my career, I have a phone call with her and I go, Robin, this is what is happening to me. And she goes, great. This is within the realm of normal or blah, 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 blah. She really, I mean, she's, she absolutely did not miss her calling, but should anything go wrong, she could represent all black female comedians for sure. So you had a a very interesting path in comedy in terms of where you have done comedy. You done it in the Netherlands. You did it in Chicago. Obviously you've been in, in New York. I'm particularly interested in the Netherlands. What was it like doing comedy there? It was the best. <laughs> Living in Holland was the absolute best. It was great because, you know, it was before consequences. Like we were out there acting insane. No one will ever know. No one will ever see a crazy video of us being bad. 
we were just out there in those streets and in, in Amsterdam like that theater we were at was kind of on the light supply and it was in the center of the city and it was like clubs and fun bars and stuff and we were just out like we would li- also please notice how I'm not talking about the job at all um your job was excellent it was excellent but but the parties dude and like the theater itself would turn into a giant club like four times a year and throw like a party with hundreds of people. And it would be the literal best time of your life. It was so much fun. And they really made having fun a part of it because they wanted you to get to Amsterdam and feel like a cool party dude. And it was so odd for them to focus their energy on that, but they did and it worked. And now when I look back, Amsterdam is this magical time where I was a wild party baby. It's great. So I guess the job was okay, or <laughs> that was great. <laughs> the job really was good. That job was like comedy basic training because I was twenty three when I got that job, and you know I hadn't done many shows at all. So I everything I learned from an audience I learned there, and you had to. No one's first language was English, so you're looking out at three hundred people, but. No one's first language is English. So everything you say has to be over enunciated and you have to talk a little slower than you nor it was nuts, but that is it came in handy everywhere you go. Like I can make myself understood anywhere with anyone about anything because we had to. It was it was great. It was a great experience. I recommend it. If you get a chance to work at Boom Chicago, you gotta take it. It's so much fun. How were their comic sensibilities different than what you experienced in the States? I think Dutch people have the widest, and I stand by this, the widest sense of humor because they speak English. So they love British comedy. So they speak English well enough to get puns and like language based comedy. And then they like the broader French comedy that's like Jerry Lewis, you know, goofy faces. And, you know, like Lucille Ball type of stuff. And then they also like, you know, schadenfreude, the German, like sad, depressing jokes. They like all of those things. So they are a very good audience. I don't think it's easy to miss with them. Dutch people like it all. So at what point did you realize it's one thing to have a dream to do something. It's another realization when you say, hey, I, I actually think I can make money at this. At what point did you realize that this is something that you could do that would sustain you? I always thought that from the second I got Boom Chicago back in whenever that was, 2004, three, I was like, this is what I'm going to do forever. And there's always going to be room for me. And once they don't want to look at me on stage anymore, I'll just teach it. And now I have a skill. I can keep it forever. And I can be, you know, old lady with a cane, uh, you know, sitting in the audience of a theater going, do it again. But perfect. You know, like, so I've always from that moment, I was like, ooh, I think I'm employed for good. So you never had um, a backup plan like as in another career. You're always like, I will teach this even if I can't do this myself. So you never considered any other possible career. Thank you for acting as though I had an option. I did not. Uh, <laughs> I, did, I never went to college. I never had any other skill set. Oh, I coached gymnastics. I guess I could have coached gymnastics. That's real. Wow. There's one I didn't see coming. (laughs) I did. I did used to coach gymnastics. I loved it. I loved gymnastics and I loved coaching it for a minute. And then I was like, these children. Amazing. Okay. (laughs) You guys, I don't want to be in charge of your kids anymore. I don't like those. So uh, what did your family think about that? About you not wanting to go to college, you wanted to pursue comedy? I am the youngest of five. So everything I've ever done, my parents are like, oh, the baby, she's doing it. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, do it. You want to move to Chicago? Why not? Do it. I think they were just out of worry by the time I came out. Also, like, I am so severely nerdy that if you had to trust someone, on the other side of the country, it would be me. I'm probably not going to go get in trouble. 
until I get to Amsterdam. And then it's a whole world of trouble I didn't know existed. <laughs> but it was, you know, most stuff over there is illegal. So it's like, what kind of illegal trouble can you get into it in the Netherlands? So it was kind of the perfect place. It's hard to break the law. Yeah, exactly. So your siblings must have not really loved that part of it. They probably took a lot of the brunt of some things that you probably didn't take. So uh, how did they view you doing this? Oh, I'm the last in a long line of explorers. My oldest sister used to live in Panama. My second oldest sister used to live in Namibia. And then so when by the time I moved to Amsterdam, my parents were like, great, yeah, knock yourself out. <laughs> because they'd already had children overseas. Because you have one sibling that's uh, a minister. Is that correct? That's right. My sister Angie Cobb is a reverend. In Minneapolis. <laughs> Do you, uh, I, I can only imagine how interesting those conversations may be. <laughs> Angie is a mess. She's my favorite. She goes on um, Good Morning America every once in a while and does Faith Fridays. And she goes, she goes on and she always ends it with some quote of a pop song. And it's absolutely hilarious. She's a really funny person. I'm going to have to write something up for her because she makes me laugh so hard. She's the best. And would you, do you think she would participate in, in a skit that you wrote or something? Or She came to see the show and was like, what are my lines? And she forced me to write a bit for her in the show. She forced me. She's on the show for a little bit hey, because, because she bullied me into writing her in the show. And I did. <laughs> I love her. She's bad. As only a, uh, a older sister will do. Um, well, look, I want to talk to you more about your siblings, in particular Lacey, because I think the book that you all wrote is, if there's a way for racism to be funny, you all found that way. <laughs> On top of me, uh, after reading it, being like, no, nah, that couldn't have really happened that way, did it? Okay. <laughs> it's true. You claim it's all true. It's unbelievable how true it is. And after hearing so many unbelievable stories, they are no longer unbelievable. You know what I mean? Because Lacey goes, Jamil, you're never going to believe it. You know it's going to be something insane. And so when you hear it, like the first couple times you're like, wow, that's nuts. The freaking 40th time. You go, yeah, yeah, of course that happened to you. Of course, it always does. And like, I grew up with Lacey, so I've seen it. I've seen it. There's something about how tiny and cute she is that makes people treat her like dirt. (laughs) She's so tiny. She's so cute. You think this child couldn't beat me up if I got out of pocket, but she could. And she has. <laughs> All right, we're going to talk about uh, more about Lacey and some other things that I know you have on your plate. Uh, but we're going to take a, a quick break and more with Amber Ruffin when we return. As I just referenced, Amber and her sister Lacey wrote a book called You'll Never Believe What Happened to Lacey, Crazy Stories About Racism. Racism isn't funny, generally speaking, but sometimes the shit is so absurd that it's kind of funny. And I got a story to tell about a racist encounter that in hindsight was pretty funny because it was so very stupid. During that alleged racial reckoning in 2020, my friend Joe, who I've known for years, shot me a text asking if I had some time to talk with him. Now, for context, Joe is white. He and I went to Michigan State together, worked on the same college newspaper, later covered Michigan State football and basketball for competing news organizations. So we got to really, really know each other. Joe and his wife, in fact, were at my wedding. They're good people. But like a lot of white people during that alleged racial reckoning time, Joe reached out to me because he wanted us to have a conversation about race and racism. He was writing a piece for The Athletic where he's a columnist, and he wondered if he let me down as a friend by not having conversations about race with me or even being curious about some of those things I experienced first as a black student at Michigan State, later as a black woman trying to carve out her career path in this very white world of sports journalism. I didn't mind having this conversation with Joe, even though during that time, me and my friends were constantly joking about how so many of our white friends suddenly want to talk about racism. 
Nevertheless, as Joe and I were talking, he brought up a racist incident that we experienced together that I had completely forgotten about. Or maybe at the time, I didn't even realize it was racist. But Joe said he did, and he wished he'd said something then. Now, there's a plot twist. The white guy recognizing racism before a black woman. Anyway, Joe and I were covering a game in Madison, Wisconsin, and afterward, we went out to a bar to get a couple drinks, and I believe we ordered some shots, and while we were contemplating which shots to order, because we'd already had a couple cocktails by then, the bartender, white man, says, what do you all want, some watermelon shots? And then apparently, he looked directly at me. Joe said it made him mad uncomfortable because it seemed like this bartender was trying to be a clown. Like I said, I'd forgotten about it or barely remembered it. Likely because I was so focused on trying to find the right shot to order that I probably just wasn't even paying attention. Because if I was, the story I might be telling right now is about that time I slapped the shit out of a bartender in Madison, Wisconsin. Here's the thing about racists. They're usually not very creative. I mean, a watermelon shot? You gonna offer me a fried chicken martini next? You gonna point me toward the collard green flavored gin? Ask me if I like the neck bone flavored beer on tap? I mean, if offering a black woman a watermelon shot is the best you got, then you need more people because you're a fucking weirdo. Now, back to more with Amber Ruffin. So we were talking about your sister, Lacey, before the break. Uh, you guys wrote an incredible um, book about racist experiences that <laughs> that you had. It's a collection of stories about racism. And it made me think about Black people and our humor. Why is it that you think Black people possess the unique ability to laugh or make a joke about practically anything, regardless of seriousness? Because we have been through it. And you got to laugh to keep from going insane. And that observation is exactly why. Remember a million years ago when, when people were like, well, I'd love to hire Black comedians or Black writers. I just can't find any. And I'm like, Black people are the funniest people on the planet and it's not even close. And it's not because we chose it or we thought it might be fun. It was to literally survive. We have you beat times a million. I'm sorry. So yeah, that always rubbed me the wrong way whenever people were like, well, there just aren't any, but I'm like, so sorry. They're the funniest people on the planet. Well, and especially there's this, stereotype or narrative that black women in particular aren't funny i'm like if you got a black mama she was funny trust me she didn't always mean to be funny but she was funny <laughs> <laughs> my mom was voted class clown as was i what carrying a tradition look at that <laughs> <laughs> now um in the book uh there are just so many different stories to to react to was there well, I guess other than the Disneyland story, but was there any story that you actually wondered, like, is it a good idea to tell the story? No. Well, no. I mean, not for the first book. <laughs> That's a long well. Okay. For the first book, we, had, we just had so many stories, so many that were writing the second book. The second book, we done turned in already. Wow. So like, but on that second book, we were like... I don't know, man. I can't. I don't think we can go in about so and so's racist neighbors because they still live there. You know what I mean? But oh my gosh, the urge, like after the first book came out, the urge to put people on blast was very hard to dodge. Like Lacey's a good human being, so she doesn't feel that way. But I am like, let's ignite these pieces of crap. But <laughs> I mean, we could drive. The editor's going to be like, legally, you cannot do that. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, the uh, well, one of the funnier ones was the Harriet Tubman story when the lady told <laughs> Harriet Tubman is my favorite story. Listeners, hold on to something. Lacey goes in to a store and pays for something with a check. This is, of course, a million years ago. She Lacey has Black History checks. And so she hands the cashier the check and the cashier looks at the check and goes, oh, I didn't know you could get your picture on checks. And the picture is of Harriet Tubman, not a special rendering of her. The picture you're thinking of when you think of Harriet Tubman. <laughs> and not, not a very young Harriet Tubman. No. <laughs> it's like she's her most Harriet-ish in this picture. <laughs> right? She has achieved Grand Harriet Dumb, that Harriet Tubman. 
And she thought that that was Lacey. And I just laughed and laughed and laughed. That's my favorite story. I say that about every story, (laughs) (laughs) but I do love that one. It's just the most, it sets the tone for the book perfectly. I mean, did you, was it difficult to convince her to, to write this, you know, to turn this into something that the public could see? Absolutely not. The reason why it was so easy for us, well, it was because we've known each other forever. So we all, we remember all these stories, but Lacey has a journal from every job she's ever had. And, you know, when you're at work and you're the only black person at work, please go get a journal and then write down everything that happens. Because lots of times what will happen is, well, when you want to go to HR, you're going to need to know every last detail. But when what will happen more often than not is someone will say a million racist things to you. And then on the hundred and first time they say something racist, you go, hey, don't talk like that. And then they lose their mind and then they go to HR and they go, this person's insane. And then when they do that, you'll go, actually, on July 5th, he said this. And on this date, he said that. And on that date, and these are the witnesses and blah, 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 blah. And that's really how it said, but that's how it had come in handy. So Lacey had, I'm not kidding, a stack of those journals. And so we just went through and chose the ones we liked the most. Did she worry at all about Maybe not. I don't think she cares about burning any racist bridges, but did she worry about, you know, what kind of ripple effect that this might have like on her life that people would be like, oh, snap. What? I ain't talking to her. This is the lady who's going <laughs> she's going to wind up in a book that it would be racist, that I'm a racist. She actually ended up doing the opposite because once word got out at her job, which, of course, she has since been fired from, um, word got out at her job that she was writing a book about all the racist things people have said to her at her jobs, people acted right. So it worked out. Uh-huh. Threatened to write a book to shut your coworkers up. It worked. Uh, speaking of uh, how you have been able or how black people in general are able to, to maybe not humor wouldn't be the word I would approach with this, but at least levity. You did um, a series of monologues uh, for Seth Meyers show after George Floyd telling people about your experiences, which was really powerful. And I think what was especially powerful was because I think you're a Black woman and people never tend to think of Black women facing the level of harassment that you face from police, that added, I think, an extra layer to it. This is not to say that we face that more than Black men, not to say not to put it in a competitive way, but I think it made people really think that much more deeply about how pervasive this problem was. So how did that come together, um, you sharing those experiences? Yeah. The week after George Floyd's murder, I was like, oh, I want to say something on the show. I'm going to write a sketch because that's the format we communicate in. So I want to sketch. And by the end of the day, I'm not exaggerating. By the end of the day, the tide of the world had changed so much that the sketch was in bad taste. So I threw it out and was like, that's okay. I'm going to do a rant. And then I wrote a rant that night and I woke up in the morning and the rant was in bad taste. And I was like, my goodness, it it was such a overnight reckoning that I was trying to write against the flow of the tide of the world. (sighs) So I was like, here's something we can do. I have been pulled over. I've been stopped by the cops seven probably times. And, but, but, you know, I've had a billion interactions with the cops, but I've been stopped by the cops and we can do a story. I can just pick the worst one and I can just tell it from what I, from memory. And they're like, Oh, okay. And so we shot it. This was during COVID. So I'm at home shooting it on zoom. And I just spoke it into the camera and they said, great. And they opened the show with it. And at this point, these people know me as the silly lady who does a goofy thing on Seth's show for the past, at that point, six years. They've known me for six years. And when I told them that the cops looked at me in a completely different way than they've ever seen me, people couldn't, they could not reconcile that with what they thought the cops were. And I think in a lot of cases, it changed 
instead of changing their perception of me, it changed the perception of the cops, which was my goal. And then, you know, so many people had such a positive response to it that at the end of that bit, I said, I can do this all day. And and it's me talking about my experiences with the cops. I am not out. I'm nowhere near the end of these stories. So they were like, okay, we'll just open the show every week with a different story. And I was like, I won't run out. Well, eventually, yeah. You, I guess. Eventually, yeah. Yeah, you would. Well, which which story that you, did you tell received the most response? I think the first story, because the first story was the about the first time I got pulled over by the cops. Because afterwards, I was like, every time since I, you know, when the cops pull you over, and you are aware of this, when the cops pull you over, lots of times they're like, what is that? and they're they start out at a ten, and you you know that they're coming in hot and you know how to talk them down so that they chill out like a giant child with a gun. So that had happened to me so many times after, but the first time I didn't know you could do that. And so when the cop came in and granted, he came in hotter than any other cop that has ever talked to me. He was like, and this was over. You just this was over speeding, correct? That's right. I think you said you're doing 45 and a 40. And I was the slowest in the flow of traffic. I was slowest. They forced me to be speeding and it was a speed trap. But I got pulled over because I was had Busta Rhymes turned all the way up. (laughs) The cop was like you and like pointing at me. I was like, get in here. And he was cussing me out as he was telling me to pull the car over. Oh, yeah. This bitch was like, pull over the fucking car. Pull the goddamn car over right fucking now. I'm out of another bit of shit. Pull over the... And just, he he can't even see. He's nowhere near me. He's livid. So I pull over. I'm instantly crying because I'm in Council Bluffs and I think this is where Black people come to get murdered by the cops, frankly, because of however white Omaha is. Council Bluffs is that times a million. So he pulled me over. And then when he came up to the window, he saw that I was a wet faced child. And he was like a girl. And he was like, oh, oh, okay, it's okay," And just turn on a dot like that. This man, I'm telling you, if I had been a boy and if I had been insistent on being treated like a human being, I'd be dead. So I just told that story almost like, and this happened to me, your regular old me. So who knows what if it was someone stronger than me who um, or someone who seemed more menacing than me? Eh, who knows? Well, at, at the time you were doing that series for Seth's show, we were allegedly having a racial reckoning <laughs> where we were ready to talk about all the issues that have been lurking underneath or really actually not even lurking. They were always out in the present. Where do you think those conversations stand now? I do think it has done some good, especially from where I'm standing. Like, you know, my view of it is definitely like have black creators and then people hire a couple of black creators and then they'd be like, no, no, no. The black people need to be making the decision. Go, oh, okay. And they hire a couple of black hire They're like, no, no, no. Who's running the entire shit? That person is like, okay. So like it's starting. And because once you show someone their ignorance and how they've embarrassed themselves, it is natural for them to be like, I don't want to feel embarrassed anymore. Let me maybe diversify my team so that we can cover all angles. And I think a lot of people are doing that. But I think also for the racial reckoning that America had a lot of other groups like the disabled community, the transgender community, like there are a lot of marginalized communities that were like, hey, let's make this shit intersectional. And so then now I think everyone is interested in doing better, whereas that was not an interest anyone had a minute ago. You know, you once tried out to be on Saturday Night Live, didn't get the job. What I found interesting and tell me if this is true, is who auditioned alongside you or in that same hiring bubble? It was you, Tiffany Haddish, Leslie Jones, Gabrielle Dennis, Nicole Byer, 
Simone Shepard and Brisha Webb. And I'm looking at this list and saying, huh? <laughs> and I mean, I, I, I adore Leslie. Leslie is amazing. But to have that many to choose from, and it just was inconceivable that SNL ever went through a period where they did not have a black cast member. Uh, but seeing those names and it just crystallized what many actors and what many performers have told me is that, no, when you go out in for these jobs and there can only be in the, the, the only one type of thing, who you're competing against is absurd. Like some people you shouldn't even be, be in there. You're like, why are you competing for this? When you think about that's who else got quote unquote rejected. That just seems so wild to me. Yeah, I mean, it was so great to be there and to watch all of these people shine and then to go like, we are so rich with talent. And I bet I'm not the only person who thought that because I think a lot of people went to those showcases and were like, oh, what an untapped market. And I think what's on television now is a ripple effect of that because it was truly beautiful. And when you do comedy and you're a black person, when you do improv and you're a black person, a lot of times they take you and they spread you out. So all of like I hadn't improvised with a black woman until I moved to L.A. 10 years ago at this point. I had been an improviser all my life, but it wasn't until my friend asked me to do her show that I was like, oh, my God, I don't think I've ever been on stage with another black woman. It's insane. Yeah. They, they split you up for sure. What's the rationale with that? The rationale is they want every show to have a black person. And they don't hire enough black people to have more than one. Yeah, it's a whole mess. That was its own thing. So, uh, you know, you're in a business that is where you'll hear way more no's than yeses. So how do you maintain your confidence when you know that rejection is a huge component to the industry you're in? Lots of times when you get a job and you look to the right and left, you'll see a lot of W-H-I-T-E people who don't have the experience you have, you know? And when I see that, I think I'm doing great because I have literally triple your experience. So I can't, you know, so any misses I'm missing, they have to be near misses because I'm so practiced and experienced that it's just a matter of taste a lot of times instead of a matter of quality. And and especially now having a show, I'm like, you never know why a thing doesn't work. It's never how you think it is. Like it's, oh, we have another thing that's too close to that. Or this just doesn't match the vibe of the person you cast in it. It's all kinds of factors that make up a rejection. So I never take it to heart. I mean, I try not to take it to heart. (laughs) Do you ever think about how, and I don't ask this question in vain, like it it would be in a better place. It just may be in a different place, but do you ever think about what would have happened if you'd have got that SNL job? Yeah. I think if I had gotten that SNL job, I would have let them crush me until I no longer work there. Like, it's not a terrible environment, but I needed something better than that environment. And Seth, Late Night with Seth Meyers is friggin' a Montessori school where they just let you figure out your feelings and exactly what your voice is, la la la, you know? So I think I landed in the exact right place because I wasn't, I don't think I was strong enough to navigate SNL and to, you know, demand my worth from them. I don't think I could have done that. Before we get to the super, super fun questions, the part of the interview that always creates uh, the controversy. One last question for you. So, you know, you, you reach the goal of having a show. I do hate asking people this because when I get asked this, I often don't have an answer. But what is that? next thing that's buried deep in your heart that you've always wanted to do, wanted to do that you want to do. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. 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 I don't know. <laughs> I've done quite a bit of stuff. I do think this was a natural evolution. Like I did a lot of improv and then 
the improv turned into shooting like short videos and this and that. And then going from improv to late night was perfect because instead of getting a suggestion and instantly having a thing about it, you read the news and you have all freaking day to come up with a story. So it's really like, I think that's easier than improv was. I think my career is going from hardest to easiest and it's super duper fun. I don't know. I, and also like, I don't have a lot of goals. I don't set a lot of goals for myself because I have never shot high enough. And I remember being like, oh man, I made it on an improv team. I'm going to do shows every Thursday for zero dollars. And be like, whoa, this is it. And then getting um, Boom Chicago and Amsterdam, be like, oh my God, I'm living in Amsterdam. I have the best time. Whoa, it's not going to get better than this. And then getting Second City, be like, it'll never get better than this. And then getting, uh, going back to Boom Chicago, be like, it'll never get better than this. So when I got Late Night Seth, I also was like, it'll never get better than this. And now I'm sitting here with my own show trying to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but we all know how I feel about it. <laughs> that That is true. I mean, I don't know. It almost feels like you found a way to rub the genie's lamp. It'll never get better than this. Yeah. You know, so you never know what might be around that corner. All right. Now the controversial part of the interview. Oh, no. It's a game that I play with every guest. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. You have to pick. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm not scared. You're not because this frightens people. (laughs) Usually. Beyonce or Rihanna? Beyonce. You aren't scared. Look at that. I'm not scared. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I should have known. Gosh, who am I talking to here? <laughs> In terms of SNL alums, Will Ferrell or Chris Farley? Will Ferrell. Sorry. I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know you love margaritas, and I know because your show actually sent me some. You sent me the famous Amber Ruffin uh, recipe. Yay. So, in terms of tequila, Blanco or Reposado? Blanco. That was hard. That was I made you suck your teeth there. Yeah. Uh-huh. I caught that. that. <laughs> and finally, uh, you reading Donald Trump's Black History Month speech, which is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Oh, thank you. Or your monologue on why we need a white history month. Oh, why we need a white history month for sure. Yeah. <laughs> the Trump thing, I guess it just sort of makes its own. <laughs> You're right. You can read that even without your commentary, which was great. You could literally read that speech and bust out laughing like, he said this? No. It was fantastic. It was was like a story from Lacey. This is something people would say to Lacey. (laughs) You're right. Or yes, Lacey would tell the story and say, my boss stood up for Black History Month and this is what he said. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, it was hilarious. Well, listen, Amber, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out and joining me um and uh that like I, that's amazing that michael harriet writes for you i'm, I'm telling you what, like you, that is truly uh just incredible such an incredible writer he wrote white history month you know what that makes sense because i learned about 500 things i didn't know <laughs> all in that entire monologue uh for everybody listening you must check out her show it's great and even more importantly please read this book that her and her sister have written because, uh, you know, if you want to kind of laugh at racism, (laughs) they give you plenty of material, but thank you and continue success. uh, Amber, appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me and for being someone I can look up to shine on little baby. Oh, stop it. (laughs) Well, Amber is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. There's a special place in hell reserved for insurance companies. And fuck it, I'm so bothered about an issue I'm currently having with the insurance carrier responsible for my homeowner's insurance that I just had to let y'all in on it. 
And by the way, that carrier, Mercury Insurance. Yeah, I'm so pissed. I'm naming names. Things were going relatively smoothly with Mercury Insurance until last year. That's when we received a cancellation notice from them because our water heater flew on the outside of our house wasn't long enough. Now, I never heard of a water heater flu, but basically it's a pipe and it's supposed to extend beyond the roof of our house. We had a flu again, just wasn't long enough for Mercury Insurance's liking. What Mercury does, and I'm guessing that a lot of other insurance companies do the same thing, is routine inspections. They have somebody drive past your house, make sure everything looks good, up to code from what they can see from the outside. I get it, but at the same time, I'm like, y'all the feds. Now, the water heater flu shit was some minor shit, but what my husband and I didn't appreciate is that these motherfuckers were aggressive in their delivery. The first we heard of this issue came with a threat to cancel our insurance. Now, I could see if they rolled by and they saw the roof caved in or some colossal damaging issue, but they puffed out their chest on us over a repair that cost less than $100 to fix. We let that shit slide, though. But later on, we actually had a real issue. We had a water leak, and without getting into too many details, it required one of our guest bathrooms to be dried out professionally and for a supply line to be fixed. We filed a claim and everything was fixed with relatively minimum hassle. We think we're good. Come to find out, we ain't good. We get a notice that our insurance is being canceled because of floor damage in our home. Floor damage? That don't make any sense. Come to find out when that claims person was here about the water leak, he included in his report that he spotted some damage on our wood floors that needed to be fixed. Oh, Captain, correct all head ass. And that's what we doing. We snitching on folks. And what's worse is he never said shit about it to us while he was actually in our house. The first we heard about this floor damage bullshit was when we got sent this cancellation notice last month, which is two months before our homeowner's insurance was set to renew. These repairs were made in December, so they purposely waited until the last minute. The problem with all this, we don't have a fucking floor damage issue. So we sent in pictures proving that was the case. And then the insurance company says that they need proof that the repairs were made to the supply line, that the leak was fixed and they needed an invoice from the repair company. Now, keep in mind, the invoice is something they pay directly to the repair company. Let me repeat that. They already directly paid the invoice to the repair company. All right, fine. We sent them a copy of the repair bill that details all the repairs made. Do you know these motherfuckers sent us an email weeks later saying that they still plan on canceling our shit because the repair bill we submitted was unacceptable because our address wasn't on the repair bill? Bullshit you not. When the repairman made out the invoice, he put his name and address on there, which at best is an honest mistake. And once again, y'all actually paid for the repairs. You know the work was done because your ass paid for it. So why the fuck are you bothering us with this ticky tacky bullshit? When I tell y'all I was heated, y'all don't know the half. So if at this point in my story, you're asking me, why y'all still fucking with Mercury Insurance? Well, it's because as of now, we don't have a choice. After they sent us that cancellation notice over the floor damage, my husband and I were so pissed. We called State Farm, who we already have a relationship with because we have some other accounts with them. First thing State Farm told us is they couldn't insure us for at least another year because we filed a claim in 2020. So let me get this straight. We pay for homeowners insurance under the premise that if something happens, we actually use the insurance we fucking paid for. But if we have the audacity to use the service that we paid for, it makes us uninsurable. Ain't that a bitch? Unfortunately, this is the business model with insurance companies. You pay for a service you cannot use. And if you do use it because other insurance companies, by the way, share claims information with each other, it prevents you from exercising your full rights and power as a consumer. So we are stuck with a company we don't want to fuck with because we're unlikely to get insured elsewhere. Or if we do, the new company probably will tax the fuck out of us because we filed a claim. What happened to all that free market bullshit? That's what I want to know. Because if this were really a free market, insurance companies would actually have to act right. And if they didn't, we would maintain the right to shop for another company who did. So bottom line to all of this, fuck Mercury Insurance. Stay unbothered. Stay unbothered.
is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word. 